Before we get started, for ways that you can help the people of Ukraine, please check the show notes. Also, we wanted to give you a quick heads up that this episode is going to cover, briefly or extensively, child abuse, pedophilia, sexual assault, and suicide. Just something to consider as you decide whether or not you want to head into the episode today. Okay, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. And I'm Cameron Lalana. This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week we are really happy to be joined once again by our dear friend of the podcast and I think most most times appeared on the podcast, uh, Dr. Caitlin oh, by Shirley. Far. Uh, Dr. Shirley runs the Dostoevsky or Doesn't She social media accounts on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr, as well as a Discord server where she hosts a Dostoevsky book club. She has a PhD in comparative literature with research focus on Russian, French, German, 18th, and 19th century literature. Her dissertation is entitled Dostoevsky in the Rousseau Trap, Considerations on the Man of Truth. Oh, fuck, I was so close. <clears throat> <laughs> you should include that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Her dissertation is entitled Dostoevsky and the Rousseau Trap, Considerations on the Man of Nature and Truth, and on his proposed reformation. Dr. Shirley, thank you so much for joining us for the third, fourth time? I believe this is the third. Thank you so much for having me. I really love talking with you guys while drinking and having a good time. <laughs> what, are you, what are you drinking this fine, this fine eve? I have decided to limit myself to a Lone Star tall boy. Halfway through. <laughs> as you should be going into this kind of episode good moderation that matt and i should probably show more often <laughs> it is sunday yeah, that's yeah that's true <laughs> well luckily for me i don't work on i don't work on mondays so i get to i get to be a little bit debaucherous um <laughs> matt what are your what, what about you yeah oh yeah i'm drinking just a just sparkling water got a little vodka in it my little my little 5 p.m drink since we're recording earlier than very normal. nice Nice. Yeah, it'd be unreasonable to drink at, uh, it's a little, I mean, it's 5 p.m. It's very early. Yeah, 5 p.m. for you. Uh, yeah, not like I'm recording and drinking several beers at 3 p.m. my time. Uh, that's... What <laughs> <laughs> beer? Uh, I'm uh, opposite you. I'm, I'm drinking a couple Stella Artois to bring into this episode. Because, nice. boy, howdy, do I need it to describe this. Uh, <laughs> do this recap. Oh, yeah. I, I have to say, I, so I, I read this and listened to the audiobooks. I've been doing a lot of driving recently, and... The, the narrator is very, very good, but listening to him do Svidrigailov is the most singularly unpleasant thing I have experienced in the last week. <laughs> Oof. And that's been a rough week, too. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was just driving through, like, the mountains, getting to L.A., just listening to him really, really dig into that role, and then really get into that, like, very deep laughter after almost every line. It was, it was, it was a great time. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you, you got that, because at least, you know, at least he's a... A good narrator. The, the narrator from the audiobook I was listening to recently, I just found a free one and it was it was not good. <laughs> Did not enjoy it. Narrators make or break it. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And they really made it in the worst way possible uh, for this one. <laughs> <laughs> they succeeded, but at what cost? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So let's. 
have been really hyping it up. Let's. I'm not. Ex- I mean, I'm like I'm excited to do the episode, but wow, I'm not excited to describe some of these things today. So let's talk about what has been happening in part six, which is the last part, but not the last bit of Crime and Punishment. And some pretty major things are going to happen here. Um, as you might recall, in the last episode, Katerina Vonona has passed away. In the few days since her death, Raskolnikov has kind of returned to that. Um, I hesitate to meet to to kind of make this direct comparison, but like the days after his murder um, or the murder he commits where he's basically half conscious just wandering all over the place um, really only able to get understand a little bit at a time he continually goes back to go see um, Sophia and the children as they're kind of having an extended funeral service paid for by Svidrigailov he vaguely remembers seeing them all but is really barely there he tries to get away and be solitary but the further out he gets away from people the more he feels uh, like a sense of presence and annoyance and he actually has to return to large crowds and hanging out in taverns and such to really feel truly alone at the point that we're actually joining him he's just like really uh horking down some soup um that nastasia has given him uh, and as he's eating that it Razumikin just pushes open his door and comes in and just immediately goes off on Raskolnikov, telling him about how uh, uh, Raskolnikov's mother has taken down the illness, how they've been trying to find him, but it's been so difficult to track him down. And, you know, now that he's he's not even thinking about his mother, even while she's ill, and his mother's thinking that he is with um, what what uh, Razumikin refers to as his girl, meaning Sonia, but Rosamikin has, has found that he's not there. In fact, really no one knows where he is, and he's really just there to give him a, a good thrashing. Uh, and then take off but Raskolnikov stops him and says hey you know pull up a chair real quick let me just talk to you and he tells them that he's really he spoke to Dunya actually recently and he's kind of basically told him to what he's been telling him this entire book that he's a good man etc and that he should take care of um of her uh, and the family etc etc and then he to basically indirectly tells uh, Rosumikin the same thing he told Dunya, which is that he needs to do something to kind of clear the air up, which Rosumikin takes to mean that Raskolnikov is a political conspirator and is going to undertake some kind of event. Um, and by the way, he's talking about telling Dunya about this. Uh, Rosumikin comes to think that Dunya is also a conspirator involved in this and realizes, oh, so that's why you've been so out of sorts lately. And that suddenly that letter Dunya got this morning, which upset her so greatly, that makes sense too. At which point Raskolnikov is like, wait, hold on, a letter? Don't know what that's about. Um, but Rosumikin is so excited to, not excited, maybe that's the wrong word, but f- feels much better about it at this point. Now that he kind of, he thinks he understands what's really been happening here and is like, oh, I knew you were, everyone said you were mad, but I knew you were not. I knew it was something else going on. He gets up to go, having told uh, Raskolnikov now that he no longer intends to drink because Raskolnikov has, has made him drunk instead. Um, and he says, oh, by the way, I talked to Porfiry and Porfiry has told me that uh, as you as you might have heard, uh, the workman Nikolai, who I so previously so staunchly defended, um, and said it could not have been him. Nikolai has confessed, and they believe that he is actually the murderer of Alyona Ivanovna and Lizaveta. And with that, he leaves. Raskolnikov watches him go and thinks, "I, I need to settle things with Porfiry and Svidrigailov." And he's driven to almost a rage, and he feels ready to kill them at this point. And he's kind of stepping out of his room, and it suddenly all comes crashing down when he finds Porfiry outside coming in to see him. I like that little detail he just like drops at the end. Like, thanks. Now that you told me, I can uh, I can go for your sister. Um, you know what? <laughs> Take a little something for you too. <laughs> I actually um, I have one note. Um, hmm. Yes, Razumihin knew what he'd done as of part four at the end of chapter three. That's right. He they had a silent moment on the stairs where 
Razumihin realized. All at once, Razumihin gave a start. Something strange seemed to pass between them, as if the hint of some idea, something horrible, hideous, flitted by and was suddenly understood on both sides. Dot, dot, dot. Razumihin turned as pale as a corpse. You understand now, Raskolnikov said? Go back. Go to them. And he walked out of the house. And shortly at, th- at the very end of that section, in short, from that evening on, Razumihin became their son and brother. And I love this because Razumihin is described as, you know, someone who could get drunk and have fun or not drink and have fun and someone who had punched a cop. <laughs> Razumihin is a cab and he is not an arc. I love yeah. that. He's ride or die. <laughs> he really is. I kind of take it as like him trying like him trying to settle this sort of dissonance. Um, he's like kind of looking for a way out, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Raskolnikov? Razumikin. Oh. How do you mean? Maybe. Uh, in the sense that if somebody was to give you really, really bad news, you, you know, the way your brain kind of, you know, like perhaps if my good co-host Cameron told me he murdered somebody <laughs> um, in in our telepathic way that we communicate, um, <laughs> p- perhaps I would be kind of looking for other ways to explain his behavior that were not what I had very strongly suspected. Yeah, I think there's both of those things. I think he knows and he wishes so bad that it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To the point of intense self-deception, which I guess is true for a lot of characters. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's that, and we now we have Porfiry coming in, and Raskolnikov obviously does not love this development. Porfiry says, "Oh, you know what? I see you're going out. Just invite me in, just for the length of a cigarette. I just want to basically clear the air with you. I, I just want to tell you, you know, I, I I respect you, and I think we should be on the same level here." And he begins to explain to Raskolnikov. Uh, uh, that he's yeah the things the other day they got a little excitable between us a little you know a little untoward almost in fact I lied to you I must admit I didn't actually have any orders for anyone to come rushing in so that was really just something I was getting to kind of lead you along and let me tell you how I came to to suspect you and he begins to lay out how starting with the rumor he began to go through and uh, see all these things that led him to believe that Raskolnikov is the murderer, uh, such as confessing to Zemetov in the restaurant, uh, or y- you might recall one of the people who was at the Alyona Ivanovna's apartment when Raskolnikov went back to basically confess, follows him in the street and calls him a murderer. Recall that Raskolnikov basically just put his head on and walked on. Um, and so Porfiry says, yeah, those were all extremely suspicious things, essentially. he's He actually he even admits in this process his admiration for Nurskolnikov, mentioning again the article that they'd previously discussed, saying that he, although he didn't agree with its conclusions, he does really admire its youthful sincerity, and he does have a genuine liking for Raskolnikov, even though he understands that Raskolnikov hates his guts. And so as he's going through all this, he uh, Raskolnikov is kind of like, could, could he really believe that I'm not the murderer? He seems so sure before. This must be some kind of trick. Raskolnikov asks, poor fairy. Well, I, I hear from Razumikin that you now suspect um, Nikolai, the painter, is the murderer. And Porfiry says, oh, yeah, Nikolai. And he begins to go through, talking through Nikolai's character, his history, how he'd, uh, pre- before coming to, to Petersburg, he was he was kind of descended from old believers and was involved in several kind of groups. It's not really said if it's like explicitly an old believer group or something kind of tangentially associated with the old believers. But he's had kind of an interesting life before coming to Petersburg and becoming kind of transformed and transfixed by all these new sights and sensations and things to do. And as he's describing it, it becomes increasingly obvious that he really doesn't think Nikolai is the murderer. 
up to and saying uh, or up to and including saying oh you know it's interesting he he knew so many details of the crime dead on and yet there are so many other things that he was completely in the dark about and says no i think he's going to recant soon essentially and then he goes on to describe the kind of a psychological profile of the person who had committed these murders and essentially gets it dead on exactly what Raskolnikov had been going through, right down to identifying the goods that had been stolen being left under the rock on the side of the street, uh, or in a courtyard, I should say. And he says, no, this does not match Nikolai's character, um, that they could not have been him. Raskolnikov rather obviously says, well, if Nikolai wasn't the murderer, then who is the murderer? At which point Porfiry's kind of taken aback and says, who's the murderer? He said, although as though unable to believe his ears, why, you, Rodion Romanovich, you are the murderer. After this, Raskolnikov says, no, no, it's not me. I definitely didn't commit that crime. But Porfiry keeps up with his insistence and he tells him, hey, look, an innocent man has been accused of this crime. If you, and I won't tell anyone that I came here to t- talk to you, we had this conversation. If you confess, apparently out of a sense of sympathy, um, at this point, I can get you a lesson sentence. You'll get your life back. And he kind of t- implores him. Uh, and says, look, you've got so much life left, and I can tell that you're intelligent. If you let me do this for you, you can uh, minimize your sentence. And Raskolnikov says, no, I'm not interested at all in minimizing a sentence, which Porfiry pretty much admits he expected. He, he, was not, he was not expecting Raskolnikov to be worried about you know, the remainder of his life because he has a great idea that he's, uh, as Porfiry says, lost faith in. Um, he says, you've lost faith and you think I'm grossly flattering you, but how long has your life been? How much do you understand? You made up a theory and then you were ashamed that it broke down and turned out to be not at all original. And continues along and tells him, look, I'll give you a day to think about it. Come and confess after that point, because after that I'm going to have to come and arrest you and it's going to get worse for you. And he gets up to go and says, oh, and by the way, if you think about, and of course this is ridiculous, but if you do think about killing yourself, uh, leave a note about... Uh, where the goods are stolen, essentially. And with that, he lets himself out. So, things not looking great for Raskolnikov at this point. Yeah. Absolute king, just going with your theory. Just (laughs) stick it to him. (laughs) It's pretty dark to say, if you do it, leave a note. Yeah. Well, but it would be pretty ridiculous, I mean. I mean, As he says, yeah. In such a situation. It'd be ridiculous, but if you do, um, please do my make sure my job doesn't get harder. As they say, a bullet in the brain or Siberia. Yeah, that's, yeah. Oof. Yeah. So, at this point, which, looking great for Skolnikov, uh, he decides that he really needs to settle things with Svidrigailov, because his desire to settle, settle things with Porfiry has kind of been, uh, that, that rug's been pulled out from underneath him. So he heads out to go to Svidrigailov's apartment, but finds himself kind of wandering off, not in the direction of Svidrigailov's apartment, taking, in fact, a, a route down the hay, out of the haymarket, which he normally would never take, and happens to see Svidrigailov sitting in kind of a, a tavern off the side of the road in a, in a room by himself. Um, and he is like initially like, oh, wait, what are the odds I would have seen him here? And he's kind of looking at Svidrigailov, and Svidrigailov looks at him, and this weird moment where they're both pretending to not have seen the other before Svidrigailov... Uh, basically realizing the jig is up and he, he can't hide because they're staring directly at each other, starts laughing and invites him in. So he goes in to, to see Svidrigailov and Svidrigailov is having, he's sitting there with a glass of, of champagne and he's having um, a, a young, I think, a young singer, maybe someone who works at the, the tavern or where, wherever he's sitting in, singing to him and he kind of tells her, okay, that's enough, you can, you can go now. Um, and offers Raskolnikov a drink who, who turns it down. 
And Raskolnikov tells them, you know, as they kind of are getting to this conversation more so, uh, after talking about the the chance, which Svidrigailov has said, in fact, there is no chance here. I, I made sure this happened. Um, Svidrigailov is like, you know, uh, we have this, should have this conversation pretty fast. In fact, I have plans in about an hour. So time is very precious for me. And uh, <laughs> Raskolnikov essentially agrees that uh, time is very precious and, and notes that, well, everyone has his plans. Um a lot of a lot of plans going on here. None of these plans are leading to leading to great places. Svidrigailov kind of laughs and, and is quite warm to him, which is you'd understand to be confusing after this initial kind of uh, reticence to see the other. He, he invites him in and he, he papers over this kind of awkwardness they had at the beginning, saying, "Oh, you know, it's only natural," um, and begins to talk about the food and the place and um, many other things. And they begin to talk about his past. Uh, he, he talks about what had happened before he met Marfa Petrovna, the life he lived. And he kind of talks over some of the kind of existential feelings that he's had through the, the seven years they spent living out in the countryside. And he, he mentions briefly uh, shooting himself because of like the boredom of this all, which put make a quick note in that, which Raskolnikov almost makes, doesn't exactly make fun of him for. Um, but as he's going on, Raskolnikov kind of returns to this at least once or twice since Fedrigailov at after that says, oh, let's not talk about that. I, you know, I, I, I admit that it's, this is a weakness of mine, but I rather am afraid of death. And so he continues to talk about his, his past and what exactly had happened between himself and Dunya. And he really begins to put forth, um, um, a version of history talking about his, his history with Marfa Petrovna where he said he tells Raskolnikov well when we first came together I told her I, I was never going to be faithful to her and you know of course she seemed crushed but you know she was a rather jealous type so it was really better for me to get that out of the way and uh, just for this whole section I just want to clarify that I'm talking through Svidrigailov's words and I'm going to have to regret a lot of things I'm going to have to say but he says she was she was the jealous type, so I think she appreciated on some level that I was transparent with her, and she set out some rules for me that, you know, of course, that uh, I could do this, I couldn't do that, I had to be open in these affections. Were I to fall in love with anyone I were to pursue, I would uh, tell her at once, but of course, she didn't believe I was capable of love, so that was never going to be a problem. This is kind of how they go for a number of years, up until the point when uh, Dunya uh, is hired as a governess, and he says to Raskolnikov, like, oh, Marfa Petrovna must have known what she was doing, because just just look at Dunya, how could I have resisted, essentially? And when they first, when she comes in, he, he tells her, like, yes, she was very, she was very chaste, and she, you know, in many ways, did not engage with me, but oh, I could tell. Um, and in fact, I knew when, uh, at one point, uh, there was another, um, an, another uh, member serving in the house, uh, a Parasha, who he says like, oh yeah, there's this other girl who was, you know, quite beautiful, but she was always, you know, so emotional. And then one uh, one day, Dunya kind of corners me in the garden, says that I should leave Paratha, uh, Parasha alone, which I, I think this is an interesting piece of storytelling, just as a side note, the kind of the ways that Dostoevsky is both writing this narrative and also letting you see the gaps in it, um, with the obvious starting of the story of, oh yeah, Dun Parasha, she was so emotional for some reason. Anyway, Dunya cornered me and told me to leave Parasha alone with that obvious gap in there. I think that's, uh, it's quite interesting that uh, how, how we, Dostoevsky, I don't know if this is intentional, I was calling your attention to the, the holes in um, Svidrigailov's story. So anyways, I was busy doing nothing, nothing bad in the garden. Yeah. 
He most definitely does. Um, this is, and he makes a very pointed reference to Rousseau at one point when he says, it's what's called la nature et la vérité, the nature, it's what's called nature and truth, which I've talked mm-hmm. at length about on this podcast before, but that direct reference to Rousseau tells us Dostoevsky is saying, Svidrigailov is telling a very calculated story right now. He is not presenting things in any way like in a whole truth kind of way. It's very much an edited story. Yeah, yeah. And he, and of course, not that we, because Dunya has not been a major point of view character, so we don't have, like, I guess, the same way of kind of telling the difference in how she thinks in the same way that we can for other point of view characters. But it's quite apparent in the way that uh, Svidrigailov describes these characters that it diverges pretty, pretty widely from who they are, which this kind of opens up in him interrupting the story to tell Uh, Raskolnikov about his theory of flattery and how you can get that to essentially make people do things that they think are totally uh, they will not even believe that they are a part of what of of the actions that you're getting to do in his case um, theoretically getting women to fall in love with him and believing that they're innocent and all of this um, before he kind of pulls the rug out from under them um, and, and this is another way that it kind of you're saying that, like you said, this is an edited story in which he almost uh, revels in the stories of some of these women who he's uh, he, he revels in the anger they show against him when when one thing or another has happened in their that kind of relationship they've had. It's every character giving their opinion on what they think about Dunya uh, and giving her like like five lines of dialogue usually. You know, at a time. Yeah, it's like it's worth discussing that Dunya is one of. I mean, I guess in general, the women of the book are not given point of view. I, I seem to have a memory of. Is this Sonia have a brief moment? But that that's I guess that's broadly true for most of the or all of the women in the book. But so upon you know elaborating on this theory of of flattery, he begins to talk about um, Dunya, and he talks about their relationship as an almost like. <sighs> uh, I don't want to use this word like an almost seduction, as if they're both participants in it which of course we know from other descriptions this was not the case but in speaking of his skewed view of reality he says oh yeah and things could have gone so well if i had not if i had simply not kind of lost my head and after one meeting in a garden i went and offered her you know uh, all this uh, money and i told her i don't think he, he was like i was i was ready to kill marfa petrovna for her um and i told her she could come to petersburg and uh, you know i'd support her forever and for you know for some reason she lost her head and uh you know marfa petrovna was quite angry at me offering what is marfa petrovna's estate and money to the governess which led to the whole the the, the events that follow He's, yeah. He's as is he's he's going through this. Svidrigailov notes that he doesn't usually drink, but he he is drinking a lot more. So he's getting a lot more into, uh, into the stories than he usually tell. And at many points, he kind of has to. He stops himself and says, "Oh, I've been drinking too much. I I should I should pull back at this point." Raskolnikov at this point is like, "Well, now that you've told me all that, I know for a fact that you've come here because you have designs on Dunya." And Svidrigailov is like, "Oh no, that's not true. Your sister can't endure me." Um, uh, and besides, I have uh, an, a fiancé at this point. I, m- I know I mentioned that to you previously, but now at this point, I actually do have one settled um, and goes into talking about how uh, an extended story and basically how he's found a poor family and has um, convinced them to marry their um, 16-year-old daughter to Svidrigailov, who is, uh, as is noted in this section, uh, well over 50. And he says, oh, you know, that really, who even thinks of that? Which, hmm. Okay, um, and then he goes off on another section, which I'm not going to describe. Um, 
he as they kind of are discussing of taking care of the children of Katerina Ivanovna, which Raskolnikov brings up. Um, he says like, oh, I think I understand some of this better now as we're having this discussion. Uh, Svidrigalov says, oh, I'm always fond of children, very fond of them, and goes on to describe an anecdote in which he um, sees a, a 13-year-old dancing in a can-can club and uh, takes her and her mother home and offers to pay for education is basically just, you know, top-tier predator <clears throat> describing their actions in very flowery language, which I don't want to talk about. Well, it, um, we uh, we talked about this when we talked about the meek one, and it happens again in the adolescent, mm. where a wealthy older man offers to pay for the education of a girl who is then in some way humiliated or abused or assaulted, and then they, um, trigger warning, they harm themselves, and it's it's disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say this this whole like section reminded me so much of the meek one. Yeah. yeah. And then even the part that Cameron's about to talk about later. So. Yeah. Yeah. As as parallels, um this has been like lightly mentioned, but the the uh, niece of Madame Madame uh Resliches, uh who had I, I don't I don't remember if she drowned herself or hung herself. I thought it was hung herself earlier in the book, but uh, later on um Svidrigailov will remember it slightly differently. maybe uh, unless I'm um, I myself am misremembering maybe a commentary on how differently he sees events that have happened but we'll get to that when we do um Svidrigailov says okay i've got to go and he takes off and raskolnikov is like no actually i i don't i that for very obvious reasons don't trust you so he begins to follow him and this kind of engages in a long long section where Svidrigailov is trying to shake him off essentially and they have kind of this wandering conversation as he goes back to his apartment and is talking through and says oh i'm gonna go off to this island I, i've got to go to this club and they're like, oh, you know, I'm completely above level. It's really weird that you're following me. And his, 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 his attitude is becoming slightly more hostile. Um, and eventually, after he goes all the way home, gets his money, they're having a long conversation. He gets into a cab and says, okay, well, do you want to ride? I'm going to go. And Raskolnikov is like, at this point, kind of more or less convinced that, okay, he doesn't, he's not up to anything. And, and decides to leave, which, as the uh, narrator notes, was... Bad call on Raskolnikov's part because barely a hundred feet uh, after uh, getting into the the cab or the the carriage at this point, Svidrigailov gets out, pays the guy, and walks all the way back, almost in the direction that uh, Raskolnikov had headed off in. Raskolnikov is so lost in his thoughts that when he is standing on a bridge and just thinking, uh, he doesn't even notice Dunya walking right past him, and uh, Dunya sees her brother and is briefly considering uh, calling out to him before she sees Svidrigailov there as well. And uh, Svidrigailov motions her to come over, and she she joins him, and he says, you know, like let's let her follow me. We need to talk, um, as as we previously as I previously noted to you in the letter. And they head off in the direction of his apartment. Dunya at one point trying to say, you know, if you have anything to say to me, you can say it out in the street. And Svidrigailov says, look, um, basically tells her, I can't say this here. You know, I, you must you must hear Sofia Semyonovna by and so of course she lives next to me so you have to come to my apartment um and if you don't come with me i shall refuse any further explanations and he almost ridicules for her ridicules her for being um uh hesitant and he says what are you even afraid of the town is not the country and even the country you did me more harm than i did you um which dunya is at this point more more concerned with letting uh talking to sofia Semyonovna, but they fall on back to his apartment uh, at this point, it, she does not appear to be at home. So Svidrik, I love, convinces her to come in and, well, so we can explain to her while they wait for Sofia Semyonovna. 
and he takes over over to a, a a room in kind of the far side of his apartment and it's completely empty in this room and he points out some doors in there and off to the right he said okay so this is a door that connects my apartment to madame Rieslich's. and on the left you'll notice in front of this door there's a chair that leads to Sofia Semyonovna's room, and it's in that room, and in fact in this chair, where I heard Raskolnikov confess to killing Alyona Ivanovna and Lizaveta. And Dunya is understandably very dubious about this claim, and she does not believe him, despite Svidrigailov saying, no, no, I, I, I heard Raskolnikov say it in his own words. And in fact, it's quite in line with his own beliefs. Don't you know he believes that misdeeds are permissible if the principal aim is right? And Dunya says, oh, wait, so you've read Raskolnikov's article, to which Svidrigailov replies, article, what article? Which I think we should put a pin in that because it's really interesting that would, even without reading the article where Raskolnikov explicitly lays out his beliefs, Svidrigailov still has a pretty good understanding of his, his motivations. So at this point, desperate for confirmation or probably denial, uh, Dunya jumps up to go see if uh, Sophia is home yet and finds that the door is locked. And she turns around and says, wait, why is the door locked? What's going on? And Svidrylov gets up and advances on her and monologues at her, basically capping off with, it's very difficult to prove an assault of Dotsia Romanovna. At which point, Dunya pulls out a fucking revolver. Yes, queen. Uh, and points it at her. Um, yeah, Dunya keeps that MF thing on her. <laughs> and as they're having this standoff, Svetogrylov recognizes the gun and he says, Oh, you have my revolver. To which Dunya responds, No, everything out in the countryside was Marfa Petrovna's. Nothing of yours was in that house. I took this when I began to suspect what you were capable of. To this, Svidrigailov really isn't cowed, and he's even weirdly into it. And he says, I know you will shoot, you pretty wild creature. Well, shoot away. And he remarks that he's never seen her so, quote, beautiful as in this moment. And uh, Dunya pulls the trigger. And, and right as she does... Svidrigailov moves and as he moves the bullet grazes by his temple and he realizes oh no she really intends to kill me I like how this happens in like half of the duels in Russian literature when the first shot misses but it's very clear that they're trying to kill the person <laughs> the, the offense that that person takes like how dare they aim at my head <laughs> um, well so Dunya pulls the trigger again but this time the round is a squib it, it doesn't go off and Svidrigailov crosses the room and takes the gun away from her and, and kind of envelops uh, Dunya and, um, and Dunya implores him to let her go and he says then you don't love me she says no and you can't never and she says she will never and he has this moment which is described as like a dumb, terrible struggle in his heart. Uh, and he, he lets her go and gives her the key and, and like tells her, like, just get out of here. You've got to go now, essentially. And, and Dunya hurries off. Following this, Svidrigailov goes back out into the town. He seems to be trying to distract himself, going back to taverns and other assorted uh, entertainments before coming back to his apartment and finding Sofia Semyonovna. Um, he goes to her, uh, having returned from where she is, and tells her that he's made arrangements to take care of 
um, to take care of the kids. And furthermore, here's 3,000 rubles to take care of yourself. And he lets her know that I'm actually, I'm leaving to go to foreign lands. I'm going to America. Following that, he goes to see his fiance's family to let them know that he's got some urgent business to attend to and he's got to leave, but he'll be back soon. You know, he, he apologizes for leaving so suddenly and gives them 15,000 rubles as like a, as a wedding gift. The whole family is overjoyed, except for, as you might imagine, the 16-year-old who is engaged to marry this 50-something-year-old. Um, and it's written that she goes to bed amazed at the large amount of money and rather sorrowful. Following this, love goes and wanders around a bit more before getting a room to sleep in for the night. Over the course of the night, he's got a variety of dreams. The ones I'll highlight are when he dreams of a, a drowned girl, uh, which is, I, I think, implied to be Madame Rieslich's niece, uh, as well as another dream, which actually, during which he thinks he's awake, trying to check out, finds himself unable to leave this, this hotel, before finding a young girl uh, under in a cupboard, uh, all wet from having been out in the rain, he takes her back to his room and undresses her and, and puts her in his bed and, and watches her rather intently um, and has a really sick line of thought, which we'll discuss more later, and goes to pull the blankets off her before he suddenly wakes up. He goes about the day walking around, initially intending to go to Petrovsky Island before realizing, you know, one place is as good as the next. And he just stops by a building where a guy's just kind of hanging out. And he turns to the guy and just stares at him. And the guy's like, um, what's up? And Svedrukailov says, you know, I'm going off to a foreign land, to America, actually. And the guy says, okay. At which point Svedrukailov takes out the revolver which dunya had pulled on him and says i guess this is the place to which the guy says no this isn't the place and svedrigailov responds why my friend i don't mind it's a good place when you're asked you just say he was going he said to america and at that point he shoots himself yep yeah uh so <laughs> there's a lot going on there um, Raskolnikov, uh, following this, the in the same day, at about 7 in the evening, he goes off to go see his mother, uh, who he finds alone, and they have a moment where he basically asks her, you know, no matter what, will you love me forever? And she says, yes, of course, you're my son. And he says, okay, good, because I'm going to go away. And she doesn't entirely appear to understand this. She kind of has this sense um, of, she keeps asking him, like, well, I'm going to see you tomorrow, right? And he says, well, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go away, but, you know, and you, hopefully you'll love me forever, but I'll be back. And, um, he has finally a, a kind of a goodbye to his mother before leaving again and going back to his own apartment where he finds Dunya. And uh, he says, at this point, he, he knows that both of them have understand what he's done. And he passes on a, a sort of uh, a goodbye to her while also justifying his actions in kind of the old language, um, using telling her that I don't regret my crime at all. In fact, I just put out the life of one, uh, one insect, essentially. And then he goes on from there to... Uh, to leave leave Dunya kind of uh, saying, you know, like, you know, if I'm guilty, forgive me, uh, though I cannot be forgiven if I'm guilty. Goodbye. Let's not argue. And, and goes off to his own place where he finds uh, Sofia Semyonovna essentially telling her the same thing before he goes to goes out and is kind of is wandering around a little bit. And he, as he's leaving Sofia Semyonovna's, he kind of tells her, even though she's pledged herself to follow him, you know, don't follow me. You don't need to do this. And as he's kind of heading out in the direction of the Haymarket, he sees that she's still shadowing him in the distance. And he goes up 
and he, he he's now thinking, I'm not, I'm going to confess, but I'm not going to confess to Porfiry. I'm not going to give him that satisfaction. I'm going to go see that lieutenant from the beginning of the book, the explosive one who I argued with. He goes up to the station. The guy is actually happy to see him. Um, and then after Raskolnikov realizes that Zemetov isn't there, he kind of leaves. He goes outside and sees Sofia Semyonovna, who is, uh, again, just staring at him, like looking like she's going to cry. And he had enough of this moment which we don't, aren't exactly privy to he turns back around he goes inside and the the the, the, the officer is like oh uh did you forget something and uh Skolnikov says um it was i who killed the old pawnbroker and her sister lizaveta with an axe and robbed them Ilya petrovich opened his mouth people ran up on all sides Raskolnikov repeated the statement so that is the end of part five uh a not exactly confession, confessy confession. Six, six. Part excuse six. me, sorry. Not good with numbers. That that's the end of part six. Yeah. Yeah, it's very specifically a yeah. statement. Yeah, and I, I so I, I actually had a question because I think we mentioned actually I honestly can't remember if we mentioned this earlier or if we had this discussion beforehand. Um, you said we I I kind of I incorrectly described this as a confession and you noted that it's not really a confession. It's 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 a statement this is like it's around everything around a confession i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that yeah so the russian word is pakazanya he makes a statement he says something it's as simple as i ate an apple i have confessed nothing in making that statement and the word in russian for confession like a spiritual confession is not used here very pointedly and he definitely goes to the police station and he makes a, what is a legal confession but that doesn't matter here that's not gonna save him that's not gonna save his soul or repair the split implied in his name that came from the crime the prestuplenia the stepping over that boundary that split that resulted between him and humanity between him and god from his crime a statement won't do that and the double, the two lines of ellipses that follow Raskolnikov repeated his statement. That is, that's what we're pondering in that, in those, in the space that those ellipses give us. What, what did that even do? Nothing. And we see, as you'll talk about next week, how little it did. Yeah, it's interesting. Is that you think that's reflected in the way that when he's talking to Sofia and Dunya, that he, the a sort of belief which he's hasn't really at this point he's defended but he has not really genuinely engaged with but when they say you know aren't you guilty you're like aren't you do you feel guilty or anything and he says no that she was and he reasserts his old belief that he was a sort of pawnbroker uh, slightly modified he says you know of course this was a failure in this case uh but i don't regret at all what i did uh reflecting that continuous the split the 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 i guess the lack of a true confession yeah and he doesn't bring up lisa though when he says that he neglects to bring up the that he did kill someone he did not intend to kill because he overslept and was late. Mm. And so she came home before he could get out and he killed her. And he does not bring that up when he's defending his crime. He ignores the fact that, you know what? Even my great idea failed because Lizaveta did not deserve to die. And in that moment when he kills Lizaveta, there's that's where he that's the immediate failure. The immediate failure is that he kills her too, because that is not part of what he can justify. He can't justify having killed this woman who was abused by her half-sister, the pawnbroker, Alyona Ivanovna, just like every mother abuses their daughter in this novel. 
mm-hmm. the mother-daughter relationships between Katerina Ivanovna and Sonia, between Pulcheria and Dunya, and while not a literal mother-daughter relationship between the pawnbroker and her sister, these are... The female characters are framed in these mother-daughter pairs, which, in my opinion, each represent an attempt to answer why Raskolnikov did it, or why he thinks he did it, or what even he did. And each female character in this text kind of forms this narrative mechanism enacted in the plot, their narrative refractions of attempts at expression. If you think about Pulcheria and Dunya, well, Pulcheria is going to not literally, but metaphorically prostitute her daughter so that Raskolnikov can go back to school and be their savior. Uh, Katerina Ivanovna literally tells her daughter, what treasure? Go do it. And for uh, tells her to go prostitute herself to save the family. And it is implied in the conversation that Raskolnikov hears at the tavern before the murder that um, Lizaveta is not 100% capable of making adult decisions and is taken advantage of by men. She's often pregnant, it is said. And you don't know if Aliona prostitutes her or not, or if men take advantage of her or what, and how these pregnancies end, we do not know, because she has no children. But there is literally a debt and an abuse of the daughters by the mothers, and Raskolnikov becomes one of those oppressors. In his narrative of I'm being a savior is is wiped out the minute that that act strikes Lizaveta because he becomes one of the oppressors in that moment. He becomes the sadistic mujik with the whip beating the mm. horse to death. And I'm, this is, I, you should see my face right now. This is not fun. This is the hard part about Dostoevsky, but it's also the real part where we don't, we don't, like Donna Orwin in her book Consequences of Consciousness said, you know, English novels end with a marriage. Russian novels begin when you wake up from your dream and you say, what now? What? What? There, there's no fantasy here. We actually face what happens after the marriage. What happens after? You happily ever after. You continue being alive. There is no turning away from it in Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. and it it is like really hard to do this, to talk about it, to read it, to face every part of humanity that we do in Dostoevsky. From Stavrogin to Svidrigailov, it is, pardon my French, it is fucked up. And we don't shy away from it in Dostoevsky. And one of the things I do appreciate the most about him is there is, all of that violence is implied. He's not gratuitous about it. He says, you know, you know, I don't need to say it. You know, because you're you're either familiar with it yourself, you've experienced it, but you know what, I don't need to say this. And he implicates us in those silences because we have to fill in those blanks and say, yep, that's what people are capable of. I think the most violent part was, well, I would consider it a duel between Dunya and Svidrigailov. Except when, when he, she, when the gun doesn't fire, she, Mm -hmm. she doesn't resist. She's trembling and implores him. And he says earlier, he's like, oh, you don't want to remember that you were flirting with me. And in that moment when she says, let me go, he realizes he is the sadistic Mujik. Mm-hmm. She has never led him on or flirted with him. He wanted her to. He wanted to believe it so bad. And he set up this opportunity for her to, quote unquote, admit it. 
And then he realizes it. And when he does say leave, take it, go quickly, he repeats the quickly. And something in this quickly, some terrible note must have sounded. It says, mm. Donya understood it and rushed. And she's beside herself after that because she knows that he was about to do what he said was difficult to prove. If she didn't take the key right then, there was one mm -hmm. moment where he was able to become a human person capable of understanding that. And she had the one chance to leave. And they both knew in that moment. There's a lot of silent understanding in this text. What passes between Razumikhin and Raskolnikov and with Sonia and Raskolnikov in this moment between Svitragailov and Dunya. The silence is where the truth exists in Dostoevsky and really most notably in this text. It's all these silent moments. I, I thought that was going to go more the way of the meek one um, with this kind of dual ending in, well, I guess I've already read the book, but in theory it could have gone this way and kind of ending in in her humiliation of not being able to kill him. Um, but it's it's less of that, I guess, like you're saying. Yeah, I don't. I, I think it is really he he has this narrative he's created and wants to believe that he's not the sadistic mujik, that he's mm -hmm. he's OK. It's fine for me to be into 13 year old girls. I'm not disgusting. I'm not a horrible person. Uh, you have no right to condemn me. And in this moment, he realizes who he is mm -hmm. and he condemns himself, which kind of tortures him to the end of uh, till his his death like i mentioned when he has that dream of fighting that um that child he he's like he's looking at her as in his bed and he compares her to a, a, a quote french harlot and he he says five years old what does it mean uh what it means is that he's an awful fucking predator but yeah he's got i guess maybe to your point once he has that realization of course it, it kind of it does leave him but that it like still haunts him after that point of this like one moment of breaking outside of this this bubble of his own understanding of, of himself and his world around him yeah i mean when when dunya accuses him of when they're meeting she accuses him of poisoning his poisoning his wife and he kind of laughs it off and basically tells her she has no proof which you know doesn't mean he's poisoning his wife no but from you know someone like svidrigailov telling reaction oh he did it come on <laughs> <laughs> i can't say it's not in the text of the book but like you know he yeah and, uh, you know, in the way, and he implicates himself when he says, you know, you can't prove it to that. And then he says to Dunya, you're not going to be able to prove this either. Yeah. What I'm about to do. And he's relying on the fact that he can't be trapped by the law because there's no proof. You poison your wife. You sexually assault a woman. There's no proof. There's no video. There's no one who was there other than the person no one's going to believe. The dead one or the victim of your crime. And in that moment, when Sonia, when Dunya says, let me go, he realizes in his head, I will never escape that. The fact that I, I am wrong. The fact that I have sinned irreparably. The fact that the law can't catch me doesn't matter, because what respect do I have for it anyway? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that Raskolnikov struggles with. Like, who cares if a corrupt legal system convicts you what what is their judgment worth nothing who has the right to forgive is one of those questions and brothers karamazov but one of the questions we thought of in my book club about demons is who has the right to condemn mm -hmm. and i think both of them are seeking that out throughout this text svidrigalov always reminded me of a snake, <laughs> snake? i don't know if there's any descriptors or just the way his name sounds in my head just so, so no. slimy it's like slippery ah. 
Yeah. I do. I do. Sorry, I don't know if you want to say something about that, but I, there's something that you've said, um, Caitlin, that was really interesting to me, that, that there's so much truth in silence. And this is kind of a theory that it's forming as I'm saying this. There is, there's a lot of truth in silence. But at the same time, there is a, like a certain permanence in, in like in the words. So for a lot of the men in the novel, the, there's they have a lot of unspoken understandings. Whereas for in many cases, those unspoken understandings are not extended to, so for example, Sofia or Dunya. Like uh, Rosumikin understands without it being said that Raskolnikov has killed, like you mentioned earlier, very early on in the story. Whereas Dunya and Sofia, they despite all the evidence, they have no belief until it's really like said to them. Uh, but at the same time, that kind of those unsaid truths are so easily papered over. And uh, well, Dunya and Sofia, uh, although they they kind of do in many ways overlook things that are directly in front of them, as soon as they're kind of out there, they are they stand out as like, well, no, this is the truth, and they carry that on forward. Whereas people like Rosumikin are able to kind of paper over that and forget it. And those unsaid truths, despite having been quicker on the draw, are things that they can hide and put away if they're un- inconvenient. Whereas Sophia and Dunya both kind of stand as who um, remarkably clear-eyed in the sense that as soon as it's that they don't believe it until it's said or it's not you know it's not something they engage with until it's said but once it is that becomes a defining feature for them and the people around them because in many ways they define their lives around them. I would argue that Sonia did understand before he said it straight out um, in that scene in chapter five when he confesses to her there is mm. he, before he's actually said it she understands and she says what have you done before he's ever said it to her dunya there there is not a moment where that happens with her but i i think dunya is a different kind of she's she represents a different kind of woman while dunya and sonia the daughters that live give different they give different kinds of hope dunya she is strong throughout this text she knows what she's doing when she's going agreed to marry Lucian. She knows what kind of man she is. She made that choice. She did it because she she agreed to it. And Sonia knows what she's doing too. She waits for no justice on this earth. And that's why when Raskolnikov says, "Let's go, let's go to America. You've sinned, I've sinned. Let's go, let's go," and she's like, "No, I I have faith. That is what keeps me alive." And when he tries to get her to destroy herself, he's like, what's going to happen to Polya? She's going to be like you. And Sonia's mm. like, God won't allow such horrors. And Raskolnikov's like, well, he allows it with others. And he tries to break her. He thinks he's mm. connected with Sonia over their mutual sins, but she pities him. And when Raskolnikov realized he is pitied by the one person he thought was the same as him, when he realizes that she has actively sacrificed herself for her loved ones while he sacrificed himself for an idea and her pity is terrible to him. Mm. But it's, yeah, I think she does. He, there are, he, there is, there are times when you're like, Sonia, do you not realize this? He literally just said, I'm going to tell you who killed Lisa. Yeah. But then when she does realize it, it's before he's told her directly. Hmm. And then, and he goes through all those different explanations of why he may have done it. There are like five, like, oh, to feed the poor, oh, to save my sister, oh, because Aliona was bad, blah, blah, blah. And then finally we get there just to dare. Hmm. That's not the same as what Sonia has done. She is actively trying to save people. She has a real reason for why she does what she does. She has not isolated herself 
from the world, her inner needs, or those who need her. She is not like Raskolnikov and what he thinks he sees in her. Just like with Svidrigailov in that moment with Dunya, Raskolnikov has a similar reaction with Sonia in that scene in part five. That, great, I'm alone. I am alone. Is it because we are seeing so much Svidrigailov in this chapter, but I, I, as I was re-looking at my underlines, the amount of anti-Semitic comments in this part specifically yeah. significantly higher than any other part of the book. Mm-hmm. I think. Yep. 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 That's something I, I had I'd not, I'd not consciously thought about that, but yeah, and you mentioned that, that's one or two I think I think I can think of in the rest of the book but yeah I could I off the top of my head I would count at least three maybe four I think there's even more than that I was looking back at all the ones that I marked and I was like my goodness yeah sorry I'm just looking through things I marked and wanted to bring up yeah it's really it's a tough it's tough to get through part six of this book mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I I struggle to even right now like get my thoughts together to address all the difficult, horrible things that we've just read and talked, like we're supposed to be discussing. It's really hard Mm. to, um, there's no, there's no answer, right? Like there's nothing we can say to wrap it up in a neat little bow. And that's what's, that's what's, that's what's so human and eternal about Dostoevsky is that, you know, he never tells us, he never says I have the answer because you know, such an announcement would be Western. That's not what happens in this text. And if the novel ended without the epilogue, it would be a mm. Western book. And a lot of people in the West do say, oh, it would have been so much better without the epilogue. What an yeah. awesome yeah. ending. <laughs> it would not be a Russian novel without the epilogue. Yeah. And I'm not going to go there because you have the delightful Kate <laughs> Holland joining you next week. But um, he, in part six... He tries the Western confession. It doesn't work. doesn't uh, give you absolution. It does not change anything. It does not facilitate reconciliation or expiation. And when Raskolnikov tries to explain his crime to Sonia, he doesn't have a clear motivation. And one of the weirdest things in this novel is it's called Crime and Punishment, and the crime happens in the first bit. It's not a detective mm-hmm. story where we're like, who did it? We're, we're actually left wondering, what did he do? Even though we know he murdered two women. But why? And, and what was that sin? And he doesn't know, and the narrator won't let us know either. It's focalized very much through what Raskolnikov is aware of. And the narrator holds back. He says, oh, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's, let's pause <laughs> and go back to what Raskol- where, where's Raskolnikov at right now? Mm-hmm. And um, the confusion of everything... He knew he was a louse pretty soon, right after the crime. I mean, that's why it's so difficult for him. But he can't admit it, not to himself, mm-hmm. and the narrator won't tell us, the narrator won't judge Raskolnikov further than Raskolnikov has judged himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but something I wanted to kind of propose to, to you and, and to, well, to both of you and see what you think. But it's interesting that as we're talking about this kind of the view we're allowed to have of Raskolnikov, kind of driven by the fact that the you know, the narrator is is not not one of the same as Raskolnikov, but is in for a lot of the book we're limited to Raskolnikov's perceptions. It, it I do find it interesting how 
how readily so many other characters understand his psychological profile. Porfiry has a dead on. Svidrigailov has a dead on. It well, in some ways, um, and you know they are they're all coming there from the same sources. Svidrigailov, when Dunya mentions the article, which essentially lays out Miskolnikov's position, Svidrigailov has no idea that was ever published. Well, maybe it's limited to to a couple of those. So it's not all characters, but so many people do understand Raskolnikov so readily. Even in fact, maybe in better ways than he understands himself. I'm I'm, I'm wondering if there's something to engage with there. Um, I think he he. Uh, it's especially interesting in the after the immediate aftermath of the crime. Like uh, he runs into Zamyatov at the market, and he's and he almost has Zamyatov convinced. He's like, "What if it was me?" What if I told you I did it? And then he's like, ah, gotcha. He almost believed me. <laughs> and Zamyatov, like, he has that moment in his head where he's like, oh, my God. But he, he's like, oh, God, come on, Raskolnikov. Like, because no one would <laughs> no one would do that. No murderer would just come up and be like, I did it. And he, he goes to the back to the scene of the crime. He's And the workmen are like, what's wrong with you? He's like, "Let's. what's wrong with me? Let's go to the police. I'll tell you there. He doesn't <laughs> want to have to say it. He wants someone to say it for him. Because to say what he did would be to admit that he's a louse, that he's no Napoleon, he did it just to dare. Hmm. He's not great. He's an oppressor, just like the people he pretended to himself he was saving these women from. His sister, Sonia, Katerina Ivanovna, his mother, Lizaveta. He becomes the sadistic mujik beating the horse as much as he pretends like he was trying not to be. He's culpable in this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that really answers your question or just makes things sadder. <laughs> I, I think in many ways making things sadder just kind of does get to the point of it. <laughs> yeah. And it's as, as much as uh, Pulcheria uh, doesn't die, but um, she, uh, she can't believe what Raskolnikov has done. She gets sick. And that's said early on in the novel that she's sentimental, not to the point of being saccharine, timid and yielding, only up to a limit. She would yield much, agree to much, even to something that went against her convictions. But there was always a limit of honesty, principle, and ultimate conviction beyond which no circumstance could make her step. And I think her limit is found with accepting what her son has done. Mm -hmm. Because she's ready to let Dunya do what she was going to do with Lucian. But she can't admit that her sacrifice of her daughter was going to be for naught because her son was what he is. And, you know, Pulcheria, she's extremely troubled that Raskolnikov wants to destroy her plans to save him. But I think that really, it talks a little bit more, it speaks a little bit more to the theme of matricide, which I think is persistent throughout this novel. You know, we have in Brothers Karamazov, obviously, the theme of patricide, but in this text, and I actually wrote this paper that I'm thinking about right now in protest of mm. all the focus on patricide and Dostoevsky, because this, like the dream of the horse, it's very pointedly a female horse. It is a mare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we are reminded of horses often can represent Russia in Russian literature. We think of Anna Karenina and um, uh, uh, what's his name's horse? Her uh, lover, Vronsky's horse. Yes, exactly. And that's like Russia and Anna at the same time, like one wrong bump and the horse has to be shot. And Raskolnikov being identified with the sadistic Mujik represents a defense against his identification with the oppressed woman. 
And in this last instance with the mother who's possessed by the father. And he feels this pain because all the mothers that he, that the debt toward the mothers is not payable. That's why they all either are die or go mad or get sick and Mm. et cetera. Dostoevsky wants to show that society and weak and perverse men have metaphorically and literally killed the generation of mothers and the debt is insolvable. It's not, it's not Raskolnikov's debt to pay. It's the debt of these absent fathers. And he tries to be a judge in a sense where he's like, I will take vengeance for the mothers that, and daughters that are suffering. I will kill the oppressor. The mothers are obstacles to his love for the daughters. And the mothers are exploiting the daughters and Raskolnikov can't help them. But the mothers are in turn exploited themselves and have to exploit their daughters in order to live. And the mayor who dies in that dream, I think, she, I think she represents the generation of women to whom the debt is insolvable because they have simply suffered too much. Hmm. And it's not Raskolnikov's debt to pay until he becomes one of their oppressors when he murders those women. Huh. I don't know if that adds. Again, probably just makes things... <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's interesting. It, I, it's not a perspective I'd taken into this, but the, the, because the more you elaborate on it, the more I, I'm coming around. I really, yeah, I see the value in, in, in taking that approach to this. Um, because I, I think it's, it's, it, there's a lot of ways you can look at this book. And this is this is one that's, that's especially interesting to me. How, how do I say this? It almost most directly engages with the themes of or at least the, the intellectual component of, OK, here's the the idea of like, OK, great you know, great men push history forward, et cetera. But that, the, the idea that great, his, great men drive history forward, it, it kind of naturally implies that the, the, as, as the theory mentions, that the rabble of people, you know, do nothing for it. They simply exist to reproduce themselves. And so I think that the, the existence of great man theory, which is both in this novel and thankfully not as pervasive today generally, but certainly <laughs> you can talk to someone about their theory of history and you'll come across that same idea. Um, I, I think engaging with the natural corollary or maybe even the opposite of like the generations of, of people who this theory creates of, of like those who, who feel they have this right to inflict upon others and, and change society, which of course is best like understood as these few great people who push history forward, but of course is um, an axis of, of many, many thousands to millions of people who believe they are those uh, theoretical great few who then inflict this kind of relationship among those around, uh, upon those around them. I, th- I think that's a really interesting point, uh, uh, understanding and something that I'm really, I'm really interested in. Yeah, I uh, I think it's yeah, and and we see throughout the novel, Raskolnikov's like, I'm a great man who can push history forward, and yet women are always taking care of him. Nastasia, mm-hmm. Sonia, Dunya, his mother, they're all trying so hard to take care of him. At the end, when he goes to Dunya, and he's like, I can't tell you, I just can't. He thinks of Sonia again after he's already realized he's alone and she's not going to condemn herself with him, and. He goes to Sonia, and I think in that moment when um, he he kind of feels buried by his mother and sister, like I can't be, I can't return to the fold through my family. But he, there is something with Sonia that he can because when she's when she knows what he did, she says, "I'll follow you. I'll go." She tells him what to do. She says, "Go make a public declaration of what you've done. Tell everyone. Go to the crossroads. I have killed." Tell them that. 
And the difference between a public and a private confession is enormous in Dostoevsky. You can deny a private confession, hope that the guy who overheard it offs himself, but you have to tell the world what you've done. You have to repair the bond with humanity that Raskolnikov broke within himself and with his community and the people. And she says, she tells him exactly what to do. She knows. She knows exactly. And she doesn't judge him because she knows she has no right to condemn him. No one does. There's no human on earth who's not guilty, as he Dostoevsky will expound upon in Brothers Karamazov. But he, she gives when when he looks out the window after he's leaving the police station after he first goes in intending to confess to Ilya, Sonia gives him a wild, wild look, and that's the look that brings that terrible smile to his face. And he he makes his statement. He tries to do what she told him to do. He says it. I did it. It was I. And that is the most basic component of a confession. I did it. I did the crime. I committed it. That is the bare minimum, but it remains a statement. And you will discuss what happens in the epilogue, but it's interesting to me that the daughters offer this hope. Dunya offers Mm -hmm. hope as a new kind of woman who's strong, who makes her own choices, who kind of answers the woman question like, duh, we're human, and duh, we should have rights, (laughs) and duh, we have Mm -hmm. been taking care of you this whole time. FYI. We have made everything you've ever done possible. Not only did we give birth to you, but we nursed you and took care of you. And while you roll through history and roll over everyone in your way, including us, we continue to care for you. And Mm -hmm. Sonia is a little different because even if her situation is tragic, again, she has her faith and she incarnates the hope of the future as much as Dunya, but in a very different way. She's kind of like the old Russian, and Dunya's like the new Russian. It's like the difference between the uh, Russian spirit and the Russian soul, one of which is a female word, one of which is a a masculine word. And um, I haven't quite formed this thought exactly, but his relationships with the mothers signify his desire and powerlessness to save them from a fate that could ultimately be his own, as we see with Marmeladov. He could get mm. rolled over by the horse, too. With Sonia, only with an only with a woman could he make this move past this statement. The openness, the something about talking to women, he's able to do. Mm. And specifically Sonia, because he can't do it to his sister. She's he recognizes that she is stronger than he ever could hope to be. Mm-hmm. She made the sacrifice that he pretended he was going to make. She was ready to do it. Sonia also made that sacrifice. Raskolnikov wasted himself. Mm-hmm. And when Sonia says, accept your suffering and be redeemed by it, that's what—that's the only path to absolution that exists. Yeah, Raskolnikov's really only a person of action for approximately one second at the beginning <laughs> of the book. <laughs> uh, whereas Dunya and Sonia are much more sustained, I feel like. Yeah. Well, I almost want, so this is uh, was for me a kind of a, a, a point of humor. Um, I, my my bar for what is is funny is very low uh, at this for this particular part. But like you, we've been talking about when Sonia tells 
Raskolnikov to go, you know, go and confess, confess out loud in public that you are, a, you know, a murderer, you've killed. Raskolnikov goes and he's, I think he's in the haymarket and he gets down his knees and he kisses the ground and people around him begin to ridicule him. And he, it, it's mentioned that it's kind of on his, if it was on his lips, you know, upon hearing everyone making fun of him, it kind of dies away. Going back to this idea of like his, his theory of great men are the ones who smash the old orders and, and trample those underfoot who are not willing to change those things. And, you know, he, he's able to do that to kill someone, but he can't stand up to public. He can't break the laws of like what you do in public. He can't say things. He cannot break those laws without feeling silly and going away and fully admitting to his crime. And I don't know. I don't think that was intended, but. It's, it's an interesting parallel because Dunya and Sonia have been working and like have been suffering with suffering humiliations under societal expectations this whole time through, which is something uh, talking about the novel, uh, like this novel is talking about the sufferings of life and not just those big events. Raskolnikov takes that big event and thinks that this is the change, but the day-to-day expectations of societal of society from um, even as small a thing as just acting a little silly in public is something he can't do. Yeah, being thought of as ridiculous is almost worse to him than admitting what he did. And, you know, I think, um, you know, he pities women invoke both hatred and pity in Raskolnikov because he sees what's being done to them, but he also hates them because he is a part of that oppression and he is also powerless to stop it. And this, this crime one could think of as an attempt to liberate the daughters from that power of the mothers over them but it's the, it's the fathers who put the mothers in that position to exploit their daughters. And Raskolnikov, is, is, he's guilty. To, he is complicit. And, mm. not, and he only sees his powerlessness and not his complicity until finally he, he, he begins to recognize, like Svidrigailov in the moment with Dunya, who he is mm. and what he has done. Who he is up to that point. I think Dostoevsky makes it very clear that we are not the worst thing we've ever done. Mm in his work, but that the worst thing we've ever done is the point at which we can become ourselves. The, the personality, the spirit only develops in these moments of complete and utter despair and crisis. You can't become who you are until you suffer, until you admit that you are suffering. And Raskolnikov tries and tries and tries to pretend he is not who he is, that he is not going through what he's going through. And to face it is too much for Svidrigailov. He can't do it. He has to break from everything irreparably and irrevocably in his suicide. He can't face it. And Raskolnikov has two options. He can face it or not. And when he goes to face it, it's because of Sonia. It's because someone in this world didn't judge him. Mm. Someone in this world said, that's not my job. I feel like that's a good spot to end damn yeah yeah that's a good that's a good right mic drop moment yeah well damn guys <laughs> that's 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 what i have <laughs> yeah no that's that was great that this is I, I i was kind of walking through this and like there's a lot here i don't i like i have so many trains of thought i don't know where to take it but i, I think talking to you has really helped uh kind of organizing it into a way to, of understanding this this part I actually think you guys were, I'm so glad Kate wanted to do the epilogue because I would have struggled to contain myself if I were allowed to talk about the epilogue (laughs) (laughs) and being forced to reckon with the, the text up to this point and only up to this point actually helped orient me a lot more as I prepared for today. That's good. (laughs) 
yeah yeah no it's been it's it's been interesting to kind of talk through i feel like each time we talk through we kind of go back on some of the things we used to think and kind of reevaluate some of the things we've been thinking so i i I, we found it useful week to week to take this bite by bite rather than what all at once which is overwhelming because there's a lot here there's too much for an all at once with the longer books for sure yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think that's why for the first one i was like well um notes from underground (laughs) (laughs) and then you know short story great but i think doing the serialized for the larger ones is smart of (laughs) y'all thank you and that's what we're doing in book club we're doing part by part for crime and punishment so yeah, and you, you, like uh, I don't think we mentioned this, but you're cu- currently in the Dostoevsky doesn't she uh, book club, cu- cu- also doing Crime and Punishment right now. And yes, currently in part two. Yes, today this morning we discussed part two. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, let me say. Let, let me, sorry. Maybe pick a quick update in time when this is going to come out so we can give it a relevant part. What would you be? Oh. Oh, cool. We're doing once a month because we're okay. everyone's gotten quite busy and I can't. Mm. I don't have the bandwidth for more than once a yeah. month anymore. That we makes used sense. to do twice a week during lockdown, but or you know, quote unquote, social distancing or whatever we did here. But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's just uh, I'm glad we're still doing it, of course, um, yeah. because it's a really wonderful group. And when we did demons, honestly, that question, "Who has the right to condemn?" had not crossed my mind. But mm. and it was not me who asked it. It was one of I think it was a 16 year old. Who was like, I think, you know, think because we'd done Brothers Karamazov and they were like, you know, people ask who has the right to forgive. But here, I mean, who who gets to say that Stavrogin is irredeemable? Who gets to say that? Who has the right? And I was like, mind blown <laughs> because it had not crossed my mind and it changed a lot of the way that I look at every single one of his texts. Hmm. Who are you mm-hmm. to cast the stone and say that you cannot be forgiven? And I think Sonia, that's her. That's it's embodied in her that I don't have that right at all. So don't ask me to do it because I can't. That's really interesting. All great reasons to join this book club, which will, um, I don't have the, uh, the exact date. It looks today. So probably by the time you, you, you're listening to this episode, we're moving on to part three, roughly. Yes, that will be on April 24th at 11 p.m. CST on Discord. A.M., not P.M. <laughs> <laughs> That would be awkward. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have the links for that in the show notes of this episode. Thank you. It's always so enjoyable to talk to you guys about Russian lit, Dostoevsky especially. So I'm so glad that y'all reached out. Love being here. Even if it's dark. <laughs> Even if it is, uh, yeah, it's uh, the darkest part of the novel. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being here. This has been a really enlightening conversation. You're so welcome. Yeah, I got a lot to think about now. <laughs> I got to translate that paper into English so that people who don't speak French can read it because I was, I was at the... <laughs> you should. I'm not great at translating yes. my own stuff, so maybe I'll <laughs> get someone to do it for me. There you go. Well, let us know when you do. Because <laughs> my, my French is, well, non-existent, but, you know, except for the parts that kind of look like Spanish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of hard to like be like, okay, so we just talked about the most depressing stuff on earth. Have a good night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, yeah, uh, I guess very fittingly, um, we don't know how to end this because this is a pretty dark part. So I'm going to ask a, a question which you've actually forgotten to ask a couple times because we've gotten so into our discussions. Um, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, where are you? I wish I was at Yeltsin. It would have made this a little more 
maybe I would have cried actually. So I'm, I'm, but I'm at a like four. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. How about, Matt, how about you? I got about a, a three, but thank you for asking the question, a question that turns all <laughs> darkness into light. As you know, all things are made up of light and shadows. So that's, that's perfect that we can transition from one to the next. <laughs> Um, I put the drunk meter God. sticker on my laptop and I always love looking at Yelts and I'm like, at least I'm not there. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that, that's a good, I, I wouldn't, that's my, that's my favorite sticker. I have it like on a couple of things. So I need to like, I think I need to start doing what you do and start referencing and be like, where are we? Not Yeltsin? Okay, we're fine. We're good. We're good. <laughs> as long as I have not gone Yeltsin, full Yeltsin, yeah. I'm okay. I put your other stickers on my guitar stands. Love them. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, yeah, yeah. As long as we're not wandering in our underwear looking for pizza, which I haven't done since quarantine, so that's <laughs> we're good. Uh, what is it that Finnish term? Pants drunk, right? Or no pants yeah. drunk, or something? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, what number are you? Where are you on the scale? Uh, God, I was I was pretty drunk for the um pretty drunk for the recap, but I've sobered up in the, our following conversation because I didn't, I didn't, I was a fool and didn't bring enough beer, so I'm I'm at a two, unfortunately. Well, keeping with the tipsy theme, it's not called Drunk Dostoevsky. That's true. And when we get, we when it's, no, it's full not. Drunk Dostoevsky, we get... People on Twitter just love to hound me about it and be like, why should you podcast that? Because we, we didn't want to be slurring our words. <laughs> <laughs> when, when we're full Drunk Dostoevsky, part four of, of Crime Punishment happens where we keep where I had to make a tally of how many times we talked. We, we, we went to a whole section about how attractive the Raskolnikov family is. <laughs> so we need, to, we need to keep that from happening again. That's that's textual, though. That That's fair. If you play the crime and punishment drinking game where every time Dostoevsky reminds you how hot Raskolnikov is, you don't last long. <laughs> I promise. I've tried. <laughs> also, I did not know that Luzhin was canon handsome until today when Wait, someone pointed really? it out in book club yes it's unpleasant to notice and even oh. the narrator remarks god i wish he wasn't but he is like handsome and one of my members said he's like a handsome middle manager you're upset <laughs> <laughs> oh no why is everyone in this book so attractive <laughs> I mean, maybe dostoevsky was like yeah, at least let him be hot yeah. If I'm going to talk about the worst stuff ever, at least let them all be sexy. <laughs> Pretty people suck, too. Yeah, this is oh God, it's like a soap opera novel form. And, and I, I just I, I didn't think about this because I knew Raskolnikov was young. But I, it wasn't until today I texted Matt about this that I found out that Raskolnikov's 23, which has thrown me into a slight existential crisis. But I mean... You know, it, I was actually reminded of this that the like Thomas Jefferson's age when the Declaration of Independence was written, I think mm. it was like 21 or something. I'm just like, great, great. What have I done? I'm old enough to be the president now. What am I doing? <laughs> oh, this is, see, Dostoevsky didn't even intend this one, but he's still throwing people for existential loops. In. <laughs> hey, Dostoevsky took a while to get to where he got, starting with Notes from Underground, so... I think we have time. That's true. I'm going to hold on to that one. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it, it's been really good chatting with you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening. If indeed you still are, you've probably guessed it by now, but next episode, we're going to be covering the epilogue of crime and punishment with the final Kate. That is to say, Dr. Kate Holland, who's going to be really useful in helping us wrap up this entire series. 
If you have not already picked up Crime and Punishment, then we highly encourage you to do so to read through it yourself and see what thoughts you come up with. You can pick it up through the affiliate links on our website or just in general. There are a million copies of Crime and Punishment out in the world. And before we release you from this hostage situation, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. That's Julie, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Drew, Joanne, Mysterious Stoner Dude, Elise, Cole, Allison, Brandon, Irini, Larkin, Alex, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Jack, Daniel, didn't put those two together intentionally, Darren, Janice, and uh, a name I cannot repeat in good conscience, and Jeff. Podcasting isn't free, and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. And you'll hear from us again soon. <laughs>